0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: You know, Coop, we hear stories like this, and they hit you so hard. And you wonder, are we not telling them right? I mean, how do we get news like we're having tonight out of Texas? when those stories have reached everybody's ears and we hope their heads and then hopefully their hearts. How, how can you watch a story like that and not understand the threat and not understand what we have to do and why? That was beautifully told and thank you for telling it. Appreciate you, pal. I'm Chris Cuomo, welcome to Prime Time. Now look, first the good news. There is good news that we are ahead of schedule in terms of when we may get back to normal. Listen. We're now on track to have enough vaccine supply for every adult in America by the end of May. Now, that would be two months earlier than expected. So, President Biden has to hold himself to his word. If he can do it, countless lives could be saved. There is only one thing that we can do to mess up this accelerated track for herd immunity. And that is to give the variants a chance to catch up and to create cases faster than we can vaccinate people and increase the chances that any deficiencies in the vaccine can be exploited and maybe even waste people who've been vaccinated. That's why the head of the CDC just said we must be careful, especially if relaxing any protective measures. So, what did Texas announce right after that? The governor announces they are throwing all caution to the wind and reopening 100%. The same governor who did not prepare the state for bad weather is now leaving it exposed to a deadly virus, just as hope is on the horizon. This is about denial. It is about defiance of reality. And that combination is hurting us as much or more than COVID. Another effort to distort the obvious was blown to bits in Washington, D.C. today. The man put in place by Trump, no, put back January 6th, that's what this is about, Because that's the greatest form of denial that we're going to see right now is where the party of Trump wants to take our past. The man who heads the FBI at Trump's urging told the GOPQ today that, no, what you're seeing here, the infamy of January 6th, this was no mere protest gone awry. It was what they used to care about most on the right, the worst kind of planned violence Terrorism.
2: It's behavior that we, the FBI, view as domestic terrorism. The problem of domestic terrorism has been metastasizing across the country for a long time now, and it's not going away anytime soon.
1: That's it. That's the truth. That's it. The FBI director, Christopher Wray, whom every righty in the room he was in today applauded when he was picked. He sat there and told the Senate Judiciary Committee, this was domestic terror, and tolerating it would make a mockery of our rule of law. So then what does the law and order bunch do? They go into denial and insist on questions about Nancy Pelosi and Antifa. That wasn't this really just a protest with some pockets of bad actors, you know, skirmishes, nothing planned. They will say anything to ignore the obvious reality of January 6th. They're always curious about investigating when they don't like the truth. You tell the truth and they don't like it. Well, now we got to keep looking, don't we? Do we really know everything? The truth is as obvious as the gush of all those blood red hats that stormed the Capitol. I wonder why they changed from the days when they hated Anyone not calling out terror as that and only that. Don't you remember?
3: Radical Islamic terrorism is a fact. We have a president that nobody can understand. He doesn't want to use the term. Radical Islamic terrorism. And I'll tell you what, we have a president that refuses to use the term. He refuses to say it.
4: We'd like a commander in chief who calls the enemy by its name.
0: He still refused to mention radical Islam. As long as we have a commander in chief unwilling even to utter the words radical Islamic terrorism, we will not have a concerted effort to defeat these radicals before they continue to murder more and more innocents.
1: Where's that now? Why didn't they keep that same energy now that they're told this is domestic terror? They didn't have to be convinced before. It's obvious now. They can see it. Remember this from the last hearing. Agents, provocateurs,
5: fake Trump protesters. You call them insurrectionists. I mean, folks who I walked by when I was on my way to the House chamber were standing there peacefully.
1: Yeah, then it's what they did after. The judiciary's ranking member, Senator Chuck Grassley, he used most of his opening statement today to spin the hearing toward Antifa violence. Christopher Ray had to shut it down. Listen to this.
2: We have not to date seen any evidence of, uh, of anarchist violent extremists or, or people subscribing to Antifa uh, in connection with the 6th. Do
4: you have any evidence that the Capitol attack was organized by, quote, fake Trump protesters?
2: We have not seen evidence of that at this stage, certainly
1: obviously that was Senator Dick Durbin referring to what Senator Grassley had said and Ray shut it down. And you know who agrees with Ray? The Trump supporters who have been charged for their role in the attack on the 6th. They are proud to own that they did it in the name of Trump. They dismiss the idea that this was about any other group. Get this. It used to be that these people on the right were fine with doing anything to anyone even connected to the planning of a terror event, let alone a perpetrator. Remember? Waterboard? Gotta do it. Torture? Need the answers. It's about the, the bigger good. Gotta protect the homeland. Gotta protect ourselves. Now, Senators Mike Lee and Josh Hawley, the guy who says that I walked past, you fist pumped a bunch of people who some of them then became part of an insurrection. That's what you did, okay? Now, these senators on the right are most concerned about whether the FBI is infringing on the rights of the insurrectionists.
2: We have to make sure that the civil liberties of the American people are protected. Are you geolocating people through the FBI? Based on where they were on January 6th?
5: Are you saying that you don't know whether or not the Bureau has scooped up geolocation data, metadata from cell phone t- uh, records from cell phone towers? You say that you're using the relevant authorities. What, what authorities are they?
1: Try to find sound of those cats, Hawley's new, of anybody on the right wanting to be careful about how you go after terror. Be careful. I mean, come on. How could it be any more ugly, any more obvious, trying to rein in the FBI from finding those who sought to kill them, our lawmakers and our former vice president, is the pull of power so strong that you don't even care what was going to be done to you? Why are they so afraid of the truth? A key witness to the truth is here. The head of the House Intel Committee, committee lead impeachment manager at the Trump first impeachment trial congressman adam schiff good to see you sir good to see you so two things uh that i want your take on from today when this was called domestic terror what does it mean to you in terms of this collective denial of seeing january 6th for what it was on the right what motivates it
3: well look it's a continuation of the big lie that led to the insurrection you had obviously the president the former president out pushing uh, this lie about the election and it was rigged and it was stolen and he actually won a landslide. Uh, That contributed, uh, and a lot of the members in Congress contributed to that lie, and that led us to January 6th. Now there's a new big lie, and the new big lie is that uh, no, it wasn't really Trump supporters that stormed the Capitol, Uh, it was uh, Antifa masquerading, that was a false flag operation. Uh, and, you know, Republican members that are willing to do that, willing to feed that kind of nonsense, that kind of conspiracy theory, continue to do a disservice to the country. Uh, and it's dangerous because there are lots of people that believe that. Uh, and so uh, I, I was glad to see Director Ray today so forcefully shoot that theory down. Will that be enough to make it go away? Probably not. Not by what Uh, happened after
1: it. Uh, Let's play that for the uh, audience, uh, Chairman, because we were referring to Senator Grassley's opening statement and what he decided to try to cast as the potential reality of what January 6th was about. Here, listen.
2: It's been a relatively frequent sight at summer's violence events to see individuals acting in coordination holding the A symbol for Antifa. In light of these ever-present left-wing threats, I'm concerned about resource-shifting talk among our colleagues across
1: the aisle. See, that's the real concern. To me, the the politics are obvious and odious, and the people can decide. Everything's obvious to me. Here's what's not obvious. How do you stop the growth of right-wing extremism and domestic terrorism if... You have this pushback from the right that we don't want to shift any resources from those bad guys on the left, as if we were talking about Democrats and Republicans and, and, you know, not neo-Nazis and nationalists. Are you worried that we may not be able to fight back against these people the way we should?
3: I am worried about it. In fact, we're investigating that issue in the committee right now. That is in the in the weeks, months, uh, years leading up to January 6th. Um, Was there such a fear among intelligence professionals at the Department of Homeland Security uh, or in terms of resource allocation within the bureau that they couldn't go after domestic terrorists of the white nationalist variety because that was discouraged, because uh, that was viewed as an attack on Trump supporters? Uh, we, We did see, and you'll remember very well, Chris, a bill bar out there hyping Antifa as the threat the country needed to worry about when the threat that was metastasizing was a threat of white nationalist uh, domestic terror. And so we didn't have the resources uh, potentially that we should have because of that political pressure. Uh, comments like you just quoted contribute to that, uh, that resistance to putting the resources where they need to go to being clear about the threat that we face, not being equivocal about it. If you can't diagnose the threat, if you can't speak directly to threat, you can't respond to the threat.
1: Uh, Now, obviously, uh, you're always invited, always have a platform on the show to discuss this. There is something that's a little ahead of where we are in the argument right now, but we may not be having the argument had you gotten this passed back in 2019. Uh, House Resolution 4192. After we get through the fog of them trying to uh, create fiction about what happened on January 6th, your party wasn't crazy about some of your solutions Uh, to this that makes these things criminal under our laws. So you don't have to fit domestic terrorists under other laws. Uh, I think it's time to reapproach that. It's going to be hard with people on the right. Tough sell on the left also. You are welcome back on the show once this part calms down to make the case for what you think will keep us more safe, Chairman.
3: Well, Chris, I appreciate that. Uh, And of course, we now have the backdrop of the Trump administration where they would abuse any authority they had So we would need to make sure that there are very strong civil liberties and privacy protections in anything we do. But I think you underscore, uh, as indeed uh, I was trying to with that bill a couple years ago, uh, the fact that uh, as you quoted these Republican members, they obviously don't equate the threat from international terror with the threat from domestic terror. Uh, That uh, domestic terror, particularly of a white nationalist variety, uh, they want to treat differently. Um, and I think we need to give the same priority, uh, although not use the same tools, but give the same priority to domestic terrorism, take it just as seriously as we do any other threat to the country. Uh, and, uh, and that, I think, is what we need to do, uh, whether we use a legislative approach or we use just an executive approach.
1: Well, when it comes back up, you have a place to argue the case right here. Congressman Adam Schiff, be well. Thank you, too. All right. Breaking pandemic news. As I said at the top of the show, the White House has moved up the timeline on vaccine availability for every American adult, two months ahead of time, May. But as the president and the CDC chief remind us, it's not a guarantee. It won't get here as fast as we want, then back to normal if we let our guard down.
6: Now is not the time to relax the critical safeguards that we know can stop the spread of COVID-19 in our communities.
1: So why would the governor of Texas not just ignore this, but go 100 miles an hour in the opposite direction? When we're so close, why open up 100%? We're gonna talk about potential consequences with somebody who is fighting the fight to keep the rest of us safe. While the lawmakers talk, People like the nurse you're going to meet know the reality of who's dying, why they're dying and what can be done. A hero joins us next. Okay. So we want to talk about the realities that are going on in this country when it comes to the pandemic. And here's the good news. The U S will now have enough vaccine for every adult by the end of May, two months ahead of schedule. Major promise by President Biden today after announcing that drug maker Merck will now help produce rival Johnson & Johnson's one-shot vaccine. Businesses can get together. Can politicians? The partnership made possible by the White House's use of the Defense Production Act. Remember everybody was asking Trump to do it and he wouldn't? That speeds up the administration's previous goal of having enough shots by two months. We can't forget, however, there's always a delay from getting the shots produced to delivered to in your arm. The president echoed the CDC today in its warning to Americans about holding on to mitigation a little longer. Now's not the time to let up. I've asked the country to wear masks for my first 100 days in office. Now's not the time to let our guard down. People's lives are at stake. He's right. Time is a killer. Just about 8% of the U.S. population has been fully vaccinated. A look across the country shows how far off we are from where we need to be. The majority of states are still in the teens when it comes to partial vaccinations. The fully vaccinated percentage, of course, even lower. Spring surge seems inevitable. Why? States are easing up on measures. And look, I get it. Everybody's had it. We all have COVID fatigue. But what you see in Texas and Mississippi getting rid of everything right away, right in the time where it's most sensitive in this race between variant and vaccine. Listen
4: to the governor and the reaction he got. Effective next Wednesday, all businesses of any type are allowed to open 100%. Also, I am ending the statewide mask mandate.
1: Look, Nobody likes what we're doing, but how can you cheer when you've had so many die and so many feeling the toll right now in Texas? Here's somebody who knows. Brittany Smart, a Texas ICU nurse. Thank you for joining us right after your shift. I appreciate you.
7: Thanks for having me.
1: So you are there. When you hear that the governor believes you are ready to have no more restrictions. What are you afraid that will look like in your place of work?
7: You know, I feel like we finally hit a point where we all started breathing a little bit easier. We kind of saw a little bit of a light at the end of the tunnel. Um, And I kind of feel like that was shut down. I I think we're all pretty exhausted and I'm I'm scared of what this is going to look like.
1: How much easier is the job now than when you guys were at peak?
7: Oh man. When this first started, I went to New York and I remember saying, I thought I was in a third world country. Like I, I'd never seen anything like it. And then I said, you know, this is only New York. Um, and then I got back to Texas four months later and I was like, Oh my gosh, this is happening here too. Um, and it was, it was absolutely devastating. Um, And I think it's going to continue to look like this. And it might even be worse because we're exhausted now. Now we're tired and we really thought it was coming to an end. Um, it's, It's not going to look good.
1: So just to be clear, it's not like you guys are playing cards all day long because the cases have dwindled so much so that the idea of not having to mask up anymore makes sense to you.
7: Yeah, we're still not allowing visitors. We're still masking up. Um, we're still taking all the precautions because we still have COVID patients. It's not like the COVID patients are gone. It's not like they're not dying. It's just that we no longer need a refrigerated truck outside is the deal. You know, our morgues have finally let up just a little bit so we can, you know, actually take care of these patients after they die and allow them to be buried properly. Um, we don't have people in the hallways anymore on stretchers. You know, we're not putting dead bodies in empty rooms at this point. Um, so we're breathing a little bit easier, but it, it doesn't really... It's not better, it's it's just, it's finally easing up a tad bit. Um, it, it's a little nerve wracking mm-hmm. to see that, you know, we're gonna take away the mask. I, I don't think it's safe to do that right now.
1: When you heard about this, what is your biggest fear about what happens between now and this burst of vaccines that will help get more people protected?
7: My biggest fear is that, um, we're gonna, we're gonna lose more people and we're gonna lose them faster because this variant is a lot stronger.
1: You know that already? And it's gonna
7: spread a lot faster.
1: Have you had any experience with the variant or is this what you're hearing?
7: So um, I have, I honestly, whenever we test people for COVID, we don't test the variants. We don't know what, we just know they're COVID positive. Mm. Um, So I'm not sure if I've taken care of someone with the variant. I just know all of our infectious disease doctors, have been like, you know, we're, we're nervous because with the variant, we're not sure exactly if this vaccine's going to cover that variant. Um, but we want all the protection we can get. And I think it's important until we know exactly what we're fighting to continue to protect everybody in the best way we can.
1: I am amazed by what you guys have been capable of doing. You know, so many of you are so young and you weren't ready Uh, for what these situations brought, and yet you've handled it so amazingly that you changed our collective fate. And I hope you know that that's felt about what you do every day all across this country. And you and I have a mutual friend, which is how I found you. Uh, And no wonder birds of a feather flock together. You're both amazing people. And I will stay in touch, and you will always be able to get me and let me know what's happening in Texas with these new measures relaxed. And I will tell people the truth. Brittany Smart, stay healthy, keep your energy up, and thank you for saving people.
7: Thank you so much. Take care. You too.
1: Can you imagine? And all we do for people like that is make it harder. Then we celebrate them. Then we make it harder. Why? The Supreme Court, active now, they may soon rule on a very, very important case, voting rights, that will impact communities of color particularly. I think you can say fairly that the Voting Rights Act is under attack again in a way that we've never seen since its inception. If justice is weak in a key provision that blocks racial discrimination, what will be in place to stop any kind of suppression move? We'll take it on next. Conservative Supreme Court justices seem ready to uphold an Arizona voting law that Democrats argue makes it harder for minorities to vote. One Arizona GOP lawyer making the case today before the court that Republicans need these rules, fair or not, to win. Listen.
6: What's the interest of the Arizona RNC here in keeping, say, the uh, out-of-precinct voter ballot disqualification rules on the books?
0: because it puts us at a competitive disadvantage relative to Democrats. Politics is a zero sum game. And every uh, extra vote they get through unlawful interpretations of section two hurts us. It's the difference between winning an election 50 to 49 and losing-
1: Sounds pretty honest. Let's discuss why that seems so popular with the justices and what the politics are at play. David Gregory, Laura Coates. Good to see you both. Laura, why is it uh, so simple for so many of the justices in terms of saying, uh, yeah, I I think this is fine, what they want to do in terms of carving up the community?
6: Well, first of all, I think he said the quiet part out loud, the idea here that the only way to win, they believed, is through suppression in some way, shape, or form, and that if that's the only way a party can survive, perhaps the party should not survive, if that's the tactic you use. But the Supreme Court's looking at this because they haven't been particularly friendly, as you know, in recent times, to the Voting Rights Act. Number one, gutting Section 5, the formula that actually provides for the preclearance by the DOJ on these issues, the idea of also upending, the idea of the intent-based test, meaning that they gave a real um, benefit of the doubt to jurisdictions about whether they had a racially motivated intent to adopt things. And what's left now is the results test, meaning if if you didn't have the intent to discriminate or to create this inequity, if the result is to have this effect still, then you can still fall under section two and still infringe upon that aspect of it. So the court is already leaning towards the idea of, well, This exists in other places, the ability to have a person's vote only count if it's actually in the precinct. And the other way is the idea of saying only certain people can actually take your absentee ballot Mm -hmm. and place it there for you. Looking across the country and saying this happens other places, but of course these lawyers have pointed out that the reason they're doing it is to capitalize and respect on the disparities that are already there.
1: So, uh, oh good, we have David back now. For a second I lost his shot, they were showing me, and I was trying to tell the control. Room. Why would you show me when you can show Laura Coates, who's speaking all this intelligence right now, and I look like (laughs) a hat rack? Um, All right, so look, Section 5 was always going to be um, a tricky test with any kind of conservative court because pre clearance with the federal uh, government when elections are so uh, closely held by states, okay. But now you've lost the intent test and you've lost the determination test, which is, you know, what does this law in fact do on a regular basis? What do you think the chance is? Uh, Laura, quick follow, then I'll come to you, David. If the court moves to allow this move, what does that mean for the future and all these different suppression rules on the books?
6: Well, frankly, they are looking like they're inclined to do so, to uphold the idea of that precinct rule as well as the absentee rule. However, they refused in their questioning to go as far as either of the Republican lawyers in this case. They, they tested the parameters, they threw out hypotheticals, the idea that you couldn't just have a carte blanche if you had a time, place, and manner, even exhausting the notion of, okay, if you tell everyone they have to vote between 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. at a country club, is that okay? And they conceded that that's not, in fact, the case. Also, second thing was the Supreme Court was reluctant to say, listen, even if you did not create the disparity, you can't capitalize on what you know to be racial disparities in order to win an election. That would run afoul to the results test. So although they may be inclined to support that aspect of the Arizona laws, the reasoning for so does not suggest that they're willing to throw away the results test of the Voting Rights Act, which is a good thing.
1: Right. Well, you got to have something. Then you don't have any Voting Rights Act, really, if you don't have that. There's really no federal protection. David. Uh, one, um, light issue and then one, uh, heavier issue. The light issue is Republicans er vote early more than Democrats tend to. That's not what this is about today, but that is one of the major directions of this new kind of burst of laws across the country. Why would they want to get rid of early voting when they vote more often early than Democrats?
4: It doesn't make sense to me. Um, you know, the, the part that you played of the Republican argument out of Arizona was so telling that it came up as in, in part of this because it is zero-sum politics. And you've actually heard this from President Trump as well, being at a competitive disadvantage. Republicans, you know, this has been an issue. I've talked to Republican officials about this over the years. Uh, because I've been covering this issue of supposed fraud, voter fraud, for the years. And, of course, Trump's just the ultimate in, in spreading the lie about it. Um, but it's, it's, it is voter suppression. The more people vote in an increasingly diverse America, the worse it is for Republicans. Even though Republicans, when they lost the second go-around to President Obama, said, we've got we to expand as a party. Well, that's not what they did, Right. certainly under Trump. They've gotten narrower as a party. Um, So it doesn't make sense to me. And and it just it goes to the fundamental question, which is that why don't you have a straight up contest here? Everybody should be able to vote. Right. And and the the, what animates the Republican grassroots is this notion that there's widespread fraud that's benefiting minorities in this country. Um, And it just hasn't been borne out by the facts. I appreciate it. I'm short on time. But I'll tell you what, if they allow this
1: law. I bet you it's going to be one of the main arrows used by those who want to get rid of the filibuster in the Senate because they'll have no other way federally to overturn any of this legislation if the filibuster is in place because they'll never get it done. David Gregory, Laura Coates, thank you both very much. Now, we have to get back to something because if something matters once, it should matter until it's fixed. And that is exactly the case on the border. Separated families the desperation of unaccompanied minors, how they're kept, how we can do better. Everybody cared. When I went down there, I've been going down there for years. Everybody says they care. Nothing has changed for the better. Now, I know that the Biden administration is not gonna like that I said that. Undoing what Trump did, I get why you did it, but doing it really fast and throwing out what was there had implications and they were not replaced with policies to handle what would come next. Hundreds of kids have not been reunited with their parents. Many, many more are coming and we are in a bad place to deal with it. I have a lead attorney in the effort to reunite migrant families on where this effort stands. It's time to talk straight about how to get straight on the border. Next.
0: About
1: the border today? Uh, yes, I did. What did you
0: learn? A lot. Is there a crisis at the border, sir? No.
1: President Biden is facing a brewing crisis at the southern border. I understand why he doesn't want to panic anybody, uh, and I don't even know if you'd care if you did try to panic it, because it's been the same way down there for years, and they're just waves of interest, and then you guys go away on it, even though nothing has changed. His administration doesn't call it a crisis and that's okay. But border crossings are up and officials are grappling with how to handle the influx of families and unaccompanied children. And that flow is coming up for two main reasons. One is natural, one is man-made. They've had bad natural disasters down in Guatemala uh, and in Ecuador and it's sending people up here, Honduras up here. But it's also because tearing down all the Trump programs and not replacing them with anything sent a message that it might be easier. And that is a reason that the flow is up. we got to deal with it. We've shown you before what it's like along the border. It's horrible. Migrants, asylum seekers, squalor. Why? Because they don't have what it takes to process the flow. And Congress won't give it to them. Under the last administration, what they did was made it easier to get rid of people without knowing their real situation. More than 70,000 people were subject to the so-called remain in Mexico policy. Many waited months, if not years, in these kinds of conditions. Under the threat of extortion, sexual assault, and kidnapping, you know horrible things happened. So Biden called for an end to that policy and has allowed a gradual entry for some of those migrants. But a lot of them are coming in. So border crossings were already going up at the end of Trump's term, but now they are new highs. I'm not saying it was wrong to end that program, that was inhumane, but what do you replace it with? In January, US border officials made about 78,000 arrests and detentions along the Mexican border. Officials tell us that when it comes to families and the kids who are crossing alone, they are overwhelmed. Trump sent back the unaccompanied kids, they'd fly them back, but it it was too rash. It was dangerous to just send them back to social services and places where you don't know if you can trust the people. But what has it been replaced with? Okay, now the left flank says, I don't like seeing them in these temporary structures. Then do your damn job and come up with a better solution because they don't have anywhere to keep the kids. They're going to wind up back in the border facilities because you don't have the space. You don't have a solution. As of today, more than 1,300 kids are in CBP custody waiting to be placed by HHS. They said, well, maybe we'll put the HHS people in the actual border facilities and that will help. Yeah, maybe, but human beings aren't housing. That takes us to our guest, Lee Gellert, okay, the deputy director of the ACLU Immigrants Rights Project and a lead attorney in the effort to reunite migrant families. Lee, friend of show, good to see you, counselor. Thanks
2: for having me again.
1: What do I got wrong? So, uh,
2: you know, I think that you're hitting it right. That, look, there are people coming. They're fleeing real danger. They're going to come. The Biden administration needs to do something about it. And I think they need to move quickly. But what I want to emphasize are two points. First is these are not historic, historically high numbers. We've had way higher numbers, for example, during the Bush two years, where the numbers twice as great. Mm -hmm. The second point is, I think we have the resources to deal with this. And I think the the point is the one you made, the Biden administration needs to move quicker to create capacity. There, There is no question that the federal government has the capacity to act humanely. I mean, we cannot, as you said, take the Trump approach where we're just gonna send little kids back to danger. So the question is, how are we gonna do this? Not everyone's gonna be allowed to ultimately stay. But we have to give people hearings. We said after World War II, we will never just send people back to danger without at least letting them tell their story, looking at their case. So I think the question is, is the Biden administration going to quickly build more capacity? They have plenty of resources to do it. Are they going to take the the help of the NGOs down on the border who want to help? And the other thing that I think is dangerous is the administration keeps... Uh, leaking numbers in a vacuum without talking about their capacity. You know, if someone didn't know anything about baseball or baseball stadiums and you said 50,000 people want to go see the Yankees game tonight, you'd say, How can the 50,000 people go? And he said, Well, the stadium seats 54,000 and we have hundreds and hundreds of ticket scanners. I mean, we have the capacity to do this. So the Biden administration just leaking the numbers saying, Look how many people are coming. Well, yes. But we have the capacity to deal with it. We've dealt with it before. There are ways to make it more efficient. And so you're right. Both points you're making. But right. some of the ways we time. used
1: to do it, we don't want to do it anymore. You know, you don't want to treat we these people know. like livestock, especially in a covid environment. You know, they're saying our beds are at 94 percent because of our, you know, our quarantine restrictions not quarantine, but our separation restrictions. Why would they lie if they don't have say if they don't have the capacity? Why would they say they they don't?
2: Right. Well, so I think that's the critical point. Not that they're lying about how much of their current capacity they've used, but why not create additional capacity? There are plenty. Yeah. I'm with of, you. Uh, uh, exactly. And so I think that's your point. You know, that's the critical point. They've been in office six weeks. Right. I think you know people are ready to give them a little bit more time, but ultimately people are going to get impatient because the federal government, when they want to do something, can do something. Absolutely. You know, and th- this is.
1: Right. Well, Lee, let's do this. Let's stay in the loop. You know, this is a new phase. Um, you tell me what you're hearing uh, and I'll tell you what I'm hearing. I'll call you right after the show. We'll get on a thread with each other because, you know, you get in the left flank of that party that wants to get high and mighty by not treating kids this way. Then do your damn job and free up the funds or give new funds. Do what you need to do through the federal law to make better situations and stay on it with your committees. But just saying we don't like it like this will never make it better. Lee Gellert, you'll make it better because you stay on it And you do the right things for the right reasons. You're a friend of the show. Now, I also wanted to do this. Look, I'm telling you, I know that situation. I've been living it for 20 years. And I know the people from different administrations who were there. The problems are real. They're not new. And they're not being addressed. It's a new administration. I totally get it. But the choices they make early on are going to reverberate. So we have to stay on it. I also want to drill down on this renewed fight about the minimum wage. I don't think it's being talked about right. $10 versus 15, well, 15 is much more than 10. What is $15 an hour? In a mid-sized city, for instance, what does it do for you? Is it more or is it less? Is it enough? I will take you through the truth. Next. My argument to you is that the politics around raising the minimum wage to $15 are miscast. It's all about, you know, less or more. Well, what about 10? Well, 15 is a lot more than 10. The reality lies elsewhere. You know, the minimum wage was born from the sweatshop era. It was to stop the grievous and heinous exploitation of kids, women, new immigrants. It was a basic don't treat these people like livestock line. It wasn't the standard that we accepted as a reasonable living wage. It was never meant as that. But it's become that. So instead of the optic of 15 being so great because it's a third more than 10, some on the right want that to be the evaluation. But let's look at the reality of what we say is enough for a fellow citizen or family in most cases. 15 bucks an hour times 40 hours a week, 600 bucks. That's if you get 40 hours a week. Many employers skirt requirements to pay more by offering less hours to avoid triggering benefit requirements like health uh, care. The ACA requires 30 hours plus you've got to give them health care, so they don't give you that. So let's say you're one of the lucky and you get 40 hours. Multiply that by 50 weeks, right, a year, not 52 because people get sick, you need time off and you're likely not getting paid vacation time. So in the end, you're making 30 grand a year before taxes. Now. Please, in my day I was making, or I started out at, please, account for inflation and the apportioned cost of living, the buying power of all workers, let alone minimum wage workers, has not improved in decades. So let's continue. Pick a city, St. Louis. You're single, no kids. Federal income, FICA, state, local taxes. Takes out a little over six grand. So you start with about $24,000. Rent in St. Louis, about $7,500, okay? For the year, obviously. You want to eat? The UDA says the basis will run you about three grand. Basics. Assuming you already have a car, gas, upkeep, parking, insurance, right? About five grand. Clothes, internet, if you're going to spoil yourself. Cell phone, about 2800 Again, you'll likely get insurance at 40 hours a week. But you're still looking at another 2600 for doctors. Co-pays, medicines, supplies. You can make it work assuming... There is no surprise bill of more than $400. There is no margin for much more than survival. And remember what I said, that's a single adult with no kids, even just one kid, and the math between left, right, and reasonable does not come out. Even if nobody gets new clothes for a year, you don't get anywhere. Cut out internet and cell phone, no toys, no Netflix, no cable you're still 23 grand in the hole. Hello, credit card debt. Say so your kid is old enough that you don't need childcare and you live close enough to work that you walk. Still in the hole. That means even with all the cuts you're now living without, you're facing a choice between which doctor's appointments you skip and how many meals you miss. The simple truth is this is a big, complicated conversation, but it's a conversation we have to have and we'll continue to have on this show. But for any of it to go anywhere, we have to start with the reality and what we think is right. We'll be right back. Thank you for watching, as always, The Big Show. CNN Tonight with the big star, D. Lemon, right now.
5: Why, why lift the restrictions right now, Chris? When, when we're finally making some headway, the vaccine is finally starting to get into enough arms that things are... Starting to turn around, but it's way too early. Why do it now? The only reason I can see is because of what happened in Texas, that someone dropped the ball, and they're trying to change the conversation. That's it, a distraction. That's how I feel. Well, it's good. You asked the question. You answered it. We're done. I'm in no. for you. He
1: needed, a, <laughs> he needed a win. He needed a win. And this is part of this prevailing you know, macho sentimentality that strong and wrong is the way to go. You know, we're going 100 percent, baby, right into the rocks. Yeah. You know, the science is clear. Look, you can be relaxing restrictions. The CDC is not crazy about it, but you have to balance what people want out of their leadership and what leadership believes it has to do. Right. There's an alchemy. But he is just trying to flout convention. It's just trumpery. Okay. that's
5: all it is. So I'm listen, I'm no expert, but I can read. And you and stayed at
1: a Holiday Inn Express last night.
5: <laughs> I did, as a matter of fact. <laughs> but, I mean, think, think about it. I think that um, what the science shows is that the, in restaurants, that the chances of exposure are not as great as in other places. Those businesses should be allowed to open to whatever extent or whatever capacity that the science shows is favorable, is correct. Um, but as far as wearing masks, I mean, all you have to do is look at look at look at what's happening with the flu this season. Mm-hmm. The number, flu. Exactly. Because why? People are wearing masks. It's so obvious. So wear the mask for a little bit. It's it doesn't hurt. Open up businesses as much as you can. I do agree with that. But lifting the mask restriction, I really think, is wrong. And I think it's it's only being done for one reason, as you said. Distraction, I say, and you say, strong and wrong. That's how I feel Look, about it. Look,
1: he, they're trying to play. Like, we just saw it this weekend at that coven of, you know, all of these kind of <laughs> wicked
5: ideas about what's happening in society. Can he's, I say something, Chris? Let me say something about that. Yes, please. Every, so, you know, I've, I've been here for, what, 14, 15 years, so a long time at CNN. And, and not once, and I've been covering international news for over a decade here at CNN, like going on two decades, who knows. I've never heard on the street anybody in my personal life, Democrat or Republican, say, oh, my gosh, I've got the CPAC. I can't wait to hear the speeches at CPAC. CPAC. No one ever talks about CPAC. But every single media station covers CPAC. And it is the extreme of the extreme. Most of the, the, the sensible Republicans that I know don't even go to the CPAC conference. They don't even pay attention to the CPAC con- back conference. I think it's simply a creation and an obsession with the media about the CPAC conference. No one gives a crap. I wish you were right, but it has
1: become the pregame show. On that side, you don't really have a left equivalent. I don't mean any disrespect to the different grassroots organizations and issue. You call it a um,
5: coven. That's what it reminded me of that. But go on. Sorry.
1: It was a coven. It, th- yeah. They were around talking about QAnon conspiracies and all these lies and magical thinking of ways to kill their opponents. Um,
5: My point proven.
1: But it is the pregame show now because yeah. that's what that party has become. Look at today. Yeah. Everybody knows what January 6th was. It was as obvious as the Red Hats. Yeah. They know it, but they'll lie about it. And, and whoever thought you would see the day that Republicans didn't want to call something terror?
5: <laughs> Remember? You got to call it for what it is. Yeah. So this guy the knew a guy who was on the phone
1: with a guy, waterboard his ass. Yeah. Remember that? Got to yep. have the answers. Got to yep.
5: treat these people like what they are. Call it what it is. Now yeah, your boy
1: says domestic terrorism. You don't want to hear it. You sure? I hope you're being nice to them. Well, you, you know why that is.
5: Why can't it be ter- terrorism in the United States? It's not just that they're white, it's that they're their white people. No, but they're white people and they're Americans. People don't like to believe that Americans can be terrorists. Yes, there are homegrown terrorists in this country. And, you know, I said if they were American brown people. Who had
1: said something like, hey, we're part of a new party. They'd have no problem calling them terrorists. You and I both know it. You'd have to announce yourself as openly not terrorist.
5: Well, You remember when I called it for what it is a couple years ago and everyone came after me when I talked about domestic terrorism and um, the right wing and and white terrorists. um, And man, I I got it. I get, you know, I had
1: Adam Schiff on tonight and he had a bill out in 2019 that his party didn't like either. I get people wanting to go slow about what kind of intel operations. You know, the CIA is not supposed to operate here. What you do with Americans. I get it. But when you know they're trying to kill us in organized fashion, the balance has to shift. And now it's just politics, Don. I've never seen us in a more precarious place where what's supposed to be right just isn't anymore. Precarious
5: place, yes. Divided, we have been. Just remember, as we know. Not so long ago, you and I couldn't drink at the same water fountain. So that division has been there. True. Right? And that is, that's True. been political and that's also been I just racial. don't want to go back because only you were alive then. Amen. You said it. I wasn't Thank you, alive brother. Yet. <laughs> I love you, D. You DM were a glimmer in your papa and mama's eyes. All right. <laughs> no, I was a mistake. Have a great show. <laughs> Thank you. I love you too, brother. I'll talk to you later.